this longing for home, this longing for rest. It's a beautiful longing, but it's meant to be satisfied in God, in Christ. And we can work and work and work and work to run after these less than perfect versions, counterfeit versions of rest, counterfeit versions of fulfillment, because we're going after the feeling. We're not going after the real thing. Welcome back to Adventure Parenting with Grace. I am Lori Donahue, and this is the Gospel Parenting Podcast, where we will walk with you through the joys of parenting and the most painful challenges so you can rise with courage, practical strategies, and hope to parent with purpose. Have you ever heard the reworded quote of Lewis Carroll that says, the harder I work, the behinder I get? Well, Sometimes that's how I feel during the Christmas season. The harder I try, the less I feel restful. We're returning for our second podcast with Eric Anderson. We're talking about rest during the holidays. The holidays can be crazy with so much to do and so much on our minds, but we can have the true rest that God brings throughout the holidays. So this morning, we are going to talk about the ways that we try to gain rest. We try to gain peace. We try to gain that sentimental feeling that the holidays bring. It's a really great conversation, and I think we should just hop in right now and listen. You've referred a lot to humanity's need for rest, and not just humanity, but individuals need for rest. So if we go back to humanity's need for rest, You look back at the fall, and in what ways did that impact our work and our rest? I I know you referred to this, but is there more about the impact of work and rest from the fall? Absolutely. There's God's design. We could talk about how how did it go wrong? (laughs) You know, what happened and what has happened to that rhythm and that pattern as a result of the fall? We live, everything is affected by the fall, and that's no less true of our work and rest. And so in a, in a fallen world, both, I think, meaningful work and life-giving rest, both now are hard to come by because both work and rest have been distorted. And that, that distortion only amplifies our need. It, it even heightens our, our longing. I love, there's an author named Andy Crouch who wrote a book, TechWise Family, that maybe some of your listeners have, have come across. A really good book. But in that, he says that instead of work and rest, we now have toil and leisure. You know, we exhaust ourselves and what feels like drudgery throughout the week in order just to stumble into our weekend of leisure where we just distract ourselves with, with vanities and inanities and, and all of it is unsatisfying. And that, you know, that experience of the distortion of work and rest is, is a result of the fall. So what are some of the ways that we actually distort work specifically? I know you said in general, but specifically, how do we distort toil? Well, when, when human sin enters the picture, it affects everything. And the way that the Bible talks about it is that, that work has become toil. That's one of, one of the words, but it's become toil. Work has become frustrated and then work, you know, can become a form of slavery. So Psalm 127 says, we rise early, go to bed late, eating the bread of anxious toil. And the psalmist is, is kind of capturing some of the results of the fall, the curses that, that come to Adam where he says, Hey, your day is you know, you're not going to get bread from the ground as easily as you used to. Now there's going to be pain, there's going to be thorns, there's going to be thistles, and it's going to be hard. By the sweat of your brow, we now have to work. And, and there's a, a sense of pain that gets laced with our efforts to work and to survive. 
And to use the lens of Genesis, we, we know this is true. Like we, this is not something you have to convince people of that work, work can be hard or difficult, but we know this is true when we, when we compare and contrast ourselves with what we see of God in Genesis one, you know, God creates, he speaks the world into existence and then he rests. And then we look at our lives and we're working and working and working. It feels like there's no end. We're never finished. And we're like, when, when is the rest going to come? Maybe, you know, and that experience of the fact that there's no end, that's toil, man, the to-do list never gets finished. I never get to check that last box because another thing gets added to the list, that's toil. Instead of experiencing the high calling of, of fulfilling God's purpose for us, you know, as his stewards in the world, we're just ticking boxes and there's this endless list uh, of more things to, to do and it never ends and we get tired. And so that's toil. The second thing we could say is, is we experience frustration. So there's the never ending side of it, but there's also the sense that even our, our efforts aren't good enough. And so God contrasting ourselves with him, he makes everything and you have that refrain over and over again. He says, God saw that it was good. And he declares, oh, wow, what I've done is good. And he can rest because he's resting that, that his good work is done. Well, too often we work and work and work and work and we get to the end of our day and we look down on what we've done and we're kind of, uh, we say, behold, it's, it's not very good. Uh, and we're disappointed. We're, and that's, that's that experience of frustration. This side of the fall, you know, our work is, is frustrated. It never produces what we would have hoped. So we have the experience of maybe it feels like someone's an enemy or it can be our own weakness and deficiencies. I'm not good enough. And that can get in the way and create this frustration in our efforts at good work. And so maybe the parents out there know they can look at their second creator who's trying to draw a picture and doesn't turn out just the way that they wanted. They get really mad, so they crumble it up and throw it in the bin. You know, that's frustration. That's the experience of frustration in their work. Instead of getting to imitate God and experience the glory of, of, of good work done in his likeness, we experience frustration, maybe a little shame as well because of our frustrated efforts. So you've got the toil, you've got the frustration. And the last thing I would just add is the experience of slavery to our work. And maybe this is in our last time we were talking about overwork. And I think this is where work can go bad with, with regards to that. But the experience of, of toil and frustration will lead some of us to then just keep working. You know, some of us throw our hands up, give up. We want to be like the sloth in the Proverbs and just be lazy. But some of us experiencing those things to just say, okay, I'm going to double down. I'm going to put my nose to the grindstone and work harder and harder and harder. And so we never rest. We never Sabbath. We never stop because we think, well, if I can just get one more hour to work, maybe an extra 15 minutes to work, maybe just maybe I can get over those, those feelings of toil or those feelings of frustration. And so we just keep going and our inability to stop betrays that we have now misplaced worship, that the sin has turned work maybe into an idol or into a, a God for us, and we become enslaved to it. And so people who work seven days a week have a hard time making time for church. And it just shows what God they're worshiping. It's not, you know, it's not the God of the universe. It's, it's the God of their own making in their work. Okay. When we talk about worship, Oftentimes we think about worship being that segment of the church service where we stand up, some people sit, stand, and we sing praises, songs to God. But when, when we're talking about worship, I think we're talking about more than that. Could you kind of elaborate on what worship can be in someone's life? Mm. Yeah, you know, w worship is ascribing worth to something. 
and it's it is it's demonstrating the value of something and how you how you hold something to be a value and obviously worship through music we lift our voices and we sing of the wonders of our god and it's a way of saying i'm going to proclaim loudly and emotionally and pour out my heart to declare how god is worthy of my praise and, and to declare his ultimate value but worship also is demonstrated in our lives in the choices that we make in our buying patterns and the way that we use our time the way we use our money the way we use our words the way we use our bodies all of these things are demonstrations of value judgments with those and they can say something about the god that we worship or they can say something about the gods the idols that we worship and and i think many of us wrestle with always ascribing to god his value and worth in obedience and instead pursue lesser lesser gods lesser things I think it's not many of us. I think it's all of us. Yes, that's right. That's I right. Think, I don't think any of us really worships the way we will be worshiping someday in heaven. Mm -hmm. I think we all don't really worship well, but we can move in that direction. Mm -hmm. And you know, the, the, the Sabbath is all about rest, but it's also all about worship. I don't think we always realize that. There's this uh, really curious thing that people have noticed in the Old Testament, uh, the Ten Commandments are listed twice. So you, you have the Ten Commandments listed in Exodus 20, and then they're listed in, in Deuteronomy 5. Well, in Exodus 20, God tells Moses, he says, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, because on it, God rested from his works of creation. You see, okay, there's the design pattern of, of, of God resting. That's why we remember the Sabbath. In Deuteronomy 5, God tells Moses, remember the Sabbath, keep it holy, because you were slaves in Egypt. And God brought you out. He saved you. And we say, well, hold on. I thought, is the Sabbath about God or is the Sabbath about work and, and being slaves in Egypt? Well, while those sound different, they're in fact, we could say essentially the same as they're both about worship. So if you recount the Exodus story, the Exodus started with Moses going to Pharaoh and saying, hey, let my people go. We just want to leave for a few days. We're not going to leave forever. Let's just let us go out into the wilderness to worship Yahweh. And, you know, I think God knew what was going to happen in making this request, but, but they say, we want to go worship. And Pharaoh freaks out and says, no, the whole story was a battle over worship. You know, Pharaoh knew that for them to worship Yahweh meant they, well, they weren't going to serve him. They weren't going to worship him. And, and so you have this battle over who are they going to serve? Are they serving Yahweh? Or are they serving Pharaoh? Who is their master? And, and Sabbath rest, pursuing Sabbath always creates tensions and it reveals our worship because how we use our time reveals our worship. And when you say, I need to take time apart to rest, to worship God and give him value, well, you're immediately saying, in that moment, God is more important than my career or my finances or my sense of esteem or that I get from working hard and truly resting and building rhythms of rest into your life might mean less career advancement. It might mean a hit to our pride. It might mean all kinds of things, but it reveals our worship. It reveals how our time and our use of time demonstrates what we worship. I just love that. It's so good. I know as a young parent, and I think I speak for a lot of parents out there, I put expectations on myself that mm -hmm. were not the right expectations and didn't fall in line. Can you speak for just a moment to maybe some of those parents that are expecting something that is not 
good for them or not, you know, mm-hmm. within God's plan for what's good for them and then causing mm-hmm. frustration. I think, okay, the, their hearts are longing for something and the good longing can drive them to sinful behaviors. And so there maybe is, is a longing for a result, a longing for rest, a longing for accomplishment, a longing for good work. God saw what he did and it was good. And I think we can be afraid of what our efforts might produce and that can drive us to work and work and work and work and work. And so maybe our kids aren't turning out exactly as we feel like they should. Or our kids aren't measuring up. You know, we, we look around and we're playing the comparison game to our friends or our, their cousins or whatever it may be, and, and they're not measuring up. I mean, in parenting, there are endless opportunities to be insecure. <laughs> you know, we just, from, from the growth charts, your first pediatrician appointment with your little baby, it's like, are they following the curve? Oh, their head is, not, you know, not in the 90th percentile. And, and there's all these reasons why we feel like I am failing as a parent. I'm not measuring up because my kid isn't what, I think they should be, or what the doctor says they should be, or the teachers say they should be. And, and so we work and we work and we work and we work. And if we think, Hey, maybe that extra ballet class, or maybe that soccer team, or maybe that tutor, or maybe that second, third, and fourth language that will help my kid become this thing that will make me feel good about my parenting. And I can, I can finally rest. I can say, behold, it's good. Look at, you know, my kid, but the danger there is turning your parenting or turning your child into an idol and saying, this is the thing that I serve. This is what I worship and I will never rest until this is exactly what I think it should be. Or having done that, being totally crushed because of that experience of frustration of I'm not good enough. I am not good enough to make my kid what I'm expecting them to be or to make my experience of parenting what I expect it to be. Sadly, some turn their kids into an idol and then some turn the experience of parenting into an idol where I think this is, this is the world of social media and Instagram and expressive individualism where there's a sense of, I see other people and I think their experience of parenting is like this. And how come I don't have that? I need to work harder to make my parenting beautiful and everything needs to be captured in this perfectly curated photo or, or video of, oh, look what we did today and isn't family life and, and what I'm doing so perfect. And it's, it's an illusion that we can chase and be enslaved to. Yeah. yeah. A few weeks ago, we had Robbie Angle on as a guest and he's mm-hmm. made a comment that just really struck me. And that was when we are pretending to be something or have a facade, like an Instagram post or something, we are calling people to love that image of what we are, which maybe we really aren't, you know, mm-hmm. He described it as putting on our masks. Mm-hmm. This is what I want you to see that I am. And people look at it and they're loving the mask. They're not loving the person. Yeah, because that can be a, a trap or a, a crushing burden to then have to maintain this facade. If it's not real, you know, now you have to work super hard to continue to present an image of yourself because you think that's what people want. That's what people like. And it's... It's never-ending work, <laughs> toil and frustration and slavery to to chase after that. Right. So bring it back to Christmas. We can put on the most beautiful lights in the neighborhood. We can have the most beautiful tree and decorations in our home. We can cook the meal that's better than any other meal. And those could fall into that if we're not careful. I mean, it's fun to have all of them. And I'm not against them. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. But we could really fall into 
buying the nicest gifts or whatever it may be. We could really fall into that trap. Well, I think, I mean, again, tying both into Christmas and to rest, I think built up around the holiday, it's even in our songs, is, is sentimental feelings. You make it a sentimental feeling. You know, it's, there is this sentiment, this, this thing that we're after. And I think it's rest. I mean, I think it, it's hearth and home. It's, you know, the family around the fire and you're in the, the beautiful clothes and the delicious food. And, and finally, there's that letdown. You know, it's, we want Rivendell. You know, we want our Christmas experience to be this magical elvish land, you know, where the future no longer has power over the present. But we're, we're chasing this feeling, this sentimental feeling that we see in commercials that we see in movies that we see in all of these things where they're just chopping up and giving you the, the three second view they're, they're not showing you all of the endless work that it would take to create you know such an environment to create such a beautiful thing and so the gifts the lights the food the parties all of it they're they're driven by this this longing for home this longing for rest it's a beautiful longing that, but it, it's meant to be satisfied in god in christ and we can work and work and work and work to run after these less than perfect versions, counterfeit versions of rest, counterfeit versions of fulfillment, because we're going after the feeling. We're not going after the real thing. So God is, is the real thing that can give us the feeling, but we're trying to generate an environment or an experience or a gift that can give us the feeling when what we need is, is the real thing, the source of those feelings. Before we leave this, I also heard you tell the story of Van Gogh. Mm. Would you be willing to share that again? Van Gogh, the famous painter? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So there's a, a book that I would commend to your listeners if you are, if you like the arts, specifically, you know, painting and, and that, that kind of art. It's called Rembrandt is in the Wind. And it was a, a pastor who wrote kind of a, a series, it was a book of kind of art history slash devotional writing. Really, really cool book where he examines different artists throughout the ages and reflects on their life and how, how that might speak into to theology and, and the Christian life. But on, in his chapter on Van Gogh, I just learned a ton that I, I didn't know about him. I mean, we all know the name Van Gogh. He's a Dutch painter. His, his paintings, I think, have sold for over $700 million or something like that collectively over the years, which is just crazy. But we also know he was a little tormented, troubled. He cut off his own ear. He ended his own life with a gunshot wound. There, there's something in his soul and his heart that, that wasn't restful. Van Gogh sold his work for these crazy amounts of money. And yet during his own lifetime, he only sold one painting. The whole, you know, while he lived, he only ever saw one of his works sell. But only this friend of his would, would buy one of his pieces of, of work for, I think it was $400. So he never saw the success that we think of him having today. And he was psychologically tormented by it. But interesting looking at, at Van Gogh, they've done, you know, numerical studies just on his output. Like how many paintings was he producing year over year, month over month, week over week? And it, you see towards the end of his life, just this dramatic, frantic ramp up of him painting and painting and painting and painting. And you can see there's just this drive. I just need to work harder and harder and harder and harder. It's almost manic. It's so sad. But you look at some of the other masters, they've, they've compared different artists, you know, Rembrandt painted about 15 paintings a year, which seems, I mean, considering masterpieces, wow, that's pretty good. You know, Monet did 42 paintings a year, uh, whereas Van Gogh averaged 96 paintings a year, which is just crazy. But even more wild, it's in the last three months of his life, 
he painted 90 paintings. That's almost one per day. And so you can imagine him just working so hard, painting, 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 you know, and this is a time where you don't go to Michael's and buy a canvas. It's pretty stretched. You have to stretch your own canvases. You have to mix your paints. You have to do it all. And he is just frantically throwing himself into his work and into his art. And they even found, you know, some of his classic paintings have sold for a lot of money. When they look, they, they examine them, you know, with microscopes and whatnot. And some of them in the paint itself, you can see the, the cross hatching impression of other canvases, which suggests he'd finish a painting and before it was done drying, throw it in a stack and keep painting and throw another one on top of it and such that they've left an imprint on one another because he's so furiously trying to crank these things out. And it's just a picture of someone who's not at rest. He, he was made for rest. And despite how hard he worked and worked and worked and worked, he couldn't find it. And we think of him as this, you know, amazing genius, this, this painter who, who paints these things that sell for millions and millions and millions of dollars. And yet we look at his life and it's just, it's a tormented heart. It's tragic. And in the end, they think it, that it led to a psychological break, which led to him taking his life, which is just horribly sad. But it's a, it's a, a parable or a picture of Augustine's famous line where he says, we're made for thee, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. And he was a restless heart, just working and working and not finding it. Yeah. Oh, that is so sad. We're ending this week on a bit of a sad note, but I have good news for you that next week is Eric's final podcast, and he is ending on how we can find that true rest in Christ. You won't want to miss it, so be sure to return. And keep in mind that although this is designed for the Christmas season, this is really important for the entire year. So I'm going to close this the way I always do. Remember to rest in the Lord this week. <music>